Section 4 of the Book of Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Book of Whales by Frank Evers Bedard. Chapter 1, Part 3. Hair. One of the most universal definitions of the mammalia is the possession of hairy covering. No other animals have any epidermal structures which are strictly comparable to hairs, and hairs are present in almost all mammals. The whales, indeed, are the only exception to the universality of this statement, and they are, after all, only a partial exception. The white whale, beluga, and the narwhal, monodon, appear never to possess any hairs, either as adults or fetuses. But in many other species, hairs have been found to persist in the adult condition, sometimes in diminished numbers. In others, there are hairs in the fetus, but none in the adult animal. These hairs are, however, entirely limited in every case to the jaw region and are so few that they can be and have been counted thus in the common porpoise there are but two on each side in the fetus the adult balenoptera borealis has according to dr collett 26 some additional facts will be found below in the systematic part of the present volume the most noteworthy point, however, about these hairs, next to the scarcity of them, is the fact that they seem to be, in all cases, rudimentary. A careful investigation of the structure of the skin has shown Dr. Kukenthal that the hairs of whales are entirely without those small glands associated with the hairs in other mammals, and secreting an oily matter for the lubrication of the hairs. These sebaceous glands, as they are termed, are not found in cetacea at all. Their absence clearly denotes a degeneration in the hairs. Now the question arises, is this loss of hair a matter of aquatic life? Is it in any way connected with their aquatic existence? or has it some other explanation? The usual view, of course, is that the hair is absent as not necessary to an aquatic animal. The use of hair is largely that of retaining the heat of the body. The loss of the heat in whales is prevented by the thick covering of blubber as well as by the thickness of the skin itself. Thus, a hairy covering would be unnecessary and perhaps even in the way, though this is not so clear. For whales, as a rule, do not swim very fast, and many hairy creatures, like the otter, do swim with considerable rapidity. The whales are the most purely aquatic of all mammals, and they are undoubtedly the least hairy. There seems, therefore, to be some connection between the two facts. But it must be borne in mind that in the seals and sea lions 
there is an outer coating of fat, and yet the hair is retained, particularly, of course, in the species which furnish the seal skin of commerce, and which possesses a soft, thick underfur, as well as a coating of coarser hairs. Among aquatic mammals, however, there appears to be an undoubted tendency to lose the hairy coverings. Among the sea lions, some do not possess the soft underfur, which makes the pelages of their allies so valuable. The hair is with them apparently becoming reduced. Then we have the Sirenia, Manatee, Dugong, in which the hair has almost disappeared. The Walrus is another case in point, and so is the Hippopotamus. But the latter instance is suggestive of another possible reason for the loss of the hairy covering in the whales. There are several ungulate types which have gradually got less hairy in the course of their evolution. The elephants of today contrast by their almost naked skin with the mammoth of the Pleistocene. The modern rhinoceros is hardly more hairy, except, indeed, the Sumatran species. While there was contemporary with the mammoth, the hairy rhinoceros. Another division of the ungulates shows the same tendency. In the pig tribe, we have the largely hairless babirusa, as well as the hippopotamus already referred to. It is conceivable, therefore, that we have in the whales an exaggeration of an ungulate tendency, and there are some who would derive the whales from an ungulate ancestry, as we'll be pointing out in more detail in a future chapter. There is yet another possible explanation of the hairless condition of the whale tribe. Whales are at present smooth-skinned animals. A few exceptions will be dealt with on another page. But there is evidence which will be gone into on the page quoted that the ancestors of whales had dermal scutes forming an armature comparable to that of such a creature as the armadillo. Now in that animal the hairs have become reduced. They have been replaced by the scales, and there is no room for them except between the scutes. If the view be correct that the ancestral whales were creatures clothed with scutes, it is easy to see how the nude condition of the modern whales has been arrived at, for the original hairy covering would have been destroyed by the appearance of the scutes, and when these latter disappeared, the hair would not reappear. At any rate, that is a legitimate assumption. It must not, therefore, be assumed offhand that the absence of hairy covering in whales is a simple question of their aquatic life. Dermal Skeleton In smooth-skinned creatures like whales, without anything more than at most a vestige of the original mammalian hairy covering, it may appear at first somewhat unnecessary to devote a section to a subject with such a title as that selected to head the present page. Nevertheless, the interesting fact is true 
that in two whales, at any rate among living forms, considerable traces of a dermal armature exist, which seems to be fairly interpretable as a remnant of what seems to have been a more extensive armature of a similar kind in certain of the extinct zooglodonts. Some years ago, in 1865, the late Dr. Gray described from the shores of Margate a purpose which he regarded as new, and described under the name Phocaena tuberculifera, on account of the fact that it possessed a series of spines on the upper edge of the dorsal fin. Dr. Gray was not then aware that the same character occurs in the common purpose that it had been noted so long ago as Pliny. The common purpose, in fact, is marked by this character, as is also Phocaena spinipinis of Burmeister, and the allied, if not identical, genus Neomeris phocanoides. The latter animal has a more extensive series of these tubercles, which have been fully described by Dr. Kukenthal. There are several rows of them running along the back. This genus has no dorsal fin. From not far behind the head to a point not remote from the commencement of the tail. In Phocena spinipinis, there are more numerous tubercles than in P. communis, present on the back as well as on the front margin of the dorsal fin. Dr. Kukenthal has pointed out that these tubercles are especially large, comparatively and obvious, in the embryos of. Neomeris, an important fact in view of the inheritance from a more completely armored ancestor. These tubercles have a form which is indicated in the accompanying figure, that is figure 7. There is more especially roughened area in the center of each. The general outline is squarish. As will be also seen in the figure, these structures are by no means unlike scales. But the term scale is one which is often used in more than one sense. It is necessary to inquire as to what kind of scales these integumental tubercles of the porpoises are to be likened to. The scales of a lizard or a snake are simply horny thickenings of the epidermis. They are, therefore, not at all comparable to the scales of such a fish as the perch or pike, where the scales are calcified plates produced in the dermis lying below the epidermis. In other fishes, such as the sharks and rays, the scales are calcified structures produced by the joint activity of both epidermis and dermis. Professor Kukenthal discovered that the rudimentary scales of the common porpoise are calcified and that the calcification is only met with in the dermis. It follows, therefore, that the rudimentary dorsal armature of the porpoise is comparable to the skin plates of an armadillo, to compare it with an animal that is nearer to it in the series 
than any type of reptile or fish. Now, although these structures are much reduced in the common porpoise, they are not really absolutely limited to the anterior margin of the fin as had been thought, for Professor Kukenthal made the important observation that here and there scattered over the general body surface on the ventral as well as on the dorsal side were similar but rather more rudimentary tubercles. It thus appears a fair conclusion that we have to deal here with a creature which has descended from an armored ancestor such as an armadillo. By this supposition it is of course not meant that the whales are the offspring of creatures exactly like the armadillo, or even referable to the same group of mammals, the edentata, which includes that form. It is merely meant to suggest that their ancestors were as completely armored as the armadillo. Nor is this a mere theory. It seems to be an undoubted fact that a fossil whale called by Johannes Müller Delphinopsis freyeri has its body covered in many regions with small, closely set tubercles. These tubercles are described as being harder than stone, and they must be comparable to the comparatively feeble tubercles which the descendants of this whale and its allies have retained today. The blowhole. The blowhole or the blowholes, where there are two separate orifices of the whale, are of course its nostrils. They are situated on the top of the head, as a rule, some way behind the front of the head, except in the sperm whale. This is in accordance with the aquatic life. We see such diverse types as the crocodile and the hippopotamus analogous arrangements of the nostrils, which allow of the animal coming to the surface to breathe and at the same time exposing the minimum of its person to possible enemies. The blowing or spouting of a whale is, of course, the act of expiration. It takes place as the whale reaches the surface or just before, after an immersion more or less prolonged. But the real nature of this process has received more than one false interpretation. Milton wrote, and probably many believe with him at the present day, of the whale who at his gills draws in and at his trunk spouts out a sea. Olaus Magnus figures the spouting of a very large whale as a means of offense. His cut represents what may be a sperm whale, maybe by reason of the teeth in the lower jaw only, a quite unnecessary frill of spines surrounds the head. But there are two sprouts which overwhelm a ship whose bulwarks the whale has seized in his jaws. The physeter, observes the writer, whose Latin we attempt to translate, raises itself above the masts of the ships and belches forth droughts of ocean from its blowholes in such a way that it overwhelms with this rainy cloud even the strongest ships, 
or expose the sailors to the greatest danger. The older naturalists, including the archbishop from whom we have just quoted, regarded the blowholes as apertures additional to the nostrils. According to Professor Kuckenthal, it was the celebrated anatomist and embryologist Carl von Baer who in 1826 first showed clearly from anatomical considerations that the whale could not spout forth a volume of seawater. The water which does actually leave the blowhole is simply the breath of the creature condensed, mingled often with a little of the surface water of the sea which the whale disturbs by commencing the act of expiration when still a little way beneath the surface of the water. Rapp, however, deservedly considered an authority upon the cetacea, went back to the earlier view, and held that the spouting was a means of getting rid of abundant water taken in with the food. After this date, there were recurrences to the correct view, and again lapses therefrom there is now no doubt about the matter at all. As to the actual structure of the blowholes, there are some important facts which must be dealt with, though briefly. The internal part of the nose in a man and in other mammals serves an olfactory as well as a respiratory function. The sense of smell is there located. In the whales, this sense as is evinced by the structure of the brain, is rudimentary or absent, and the nostrils, therefore, have but one function to perform, i.e., that of taking in and expelling respiratory air. Mosley, quote, notes of a naturalist on the challenger, unquote, describes the blowing of a humpback which followed the challenger for several days in the South Pacific. The appearance of a whale spout, as seen from the level of the sea, is very different from that which it has when seen from the deck of a ship. It appears so much higher, and shoots up into the air like a fountain discharged from a very fine rose. The whale, of course, in reality, does not discharge water, but only its breath. This, however, in rushing up into the air, hot from the animal's body, has its moisture condensed to form a sort of rain, and the colder the air, just as in the case of our own breath, the more marked the result. When the spout is made with a blowhole clear above the surface of the water, it appears like a sudden jet of steam from a boiler. When effected, as it sometimes is, before the blowhole reaches the surface, a low fountain, as from a street fire plug, is formed, and when the hole is close to the surface, at the moment a little water is sent up with a tall jet of steam. The cloud blown up does not disappear at once, but hangs a little while, and is often seen to drift a short distance with the wind. The expiratory sound is very loud when heard close by, and is a sort of deep bass snort, extremely loud and somewhat prolonged. 
It might even be compared to the sound produced by the rushing of stream at high pressure from a large pipe. End of section four. Recording by Mike Botes.